John chapter 2, beginning from verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, open our eyes this morning as we read your word. Help us see you for who you truly are. Help us grow in our knowledge of you. Help us grow in our love for you. But Lord, we also ask this morning that you would help us remove anything that hinders our worship of you. Take away the sin that entangles us so that we may live in right relationship with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by asking, what do you hate? What makes you really angry? What makes your blood boil? What is it that takes you this charming delight that we see every Sunday morning and it transforms you into a white hot ball of rage. Now it's hard to imagine some of you ever getting angry and others of you it's not so hard to imagine. But anger and hatred it's something that well we try and teach our kids to avoid don't we? You know, when your three-year-old screams that they hate that food or they hate that piece of clothing, you try to teach them that, well, they should never hate. And when that three-year-old stares you in the eyes and points their finger at you and says, I hate you, you try really hard to model not hating anyone, even though you feel that blood rushing to your face. See, hate is a strong feeling, and as Christians, we should certainly never hate people, the fact that everyone is created in the image of God and is just as much in need of God's grace as we are ourselves, that that means that we should never hate. We should love everyone. That means regardless of whether they like us, whether they agree with us, 
whether they even treat us with kindness, even those who outright attack us, the gospel teaches us and even gives us the ability to love even our enemies. We must never hate people, but that doesn't mean we must never hate. And in fact, I think we can go so far as to say that unless we hate, then we do not love. Unless we hate, we cannot love. How can we say that we love the people of Ukraine if we do not hate the actions of Putin's army? We can't, can we? Not hating the war equates to not loving the victims of war. In the same way, you can't love your children if you don't hate things that threaten their safety. I was down at Sunshine Beach at the, at the dog beach yesterday with our, with our puppy. And just, just imagine, this didn't happen, but just imagine that there was you know, a, a ferocious dog, a pit bull that was there, loose on the beach, and it started attacking one of my kids. And I just stand there watching. I love you, sweetie. It doesn't count, does it? I, I do not love my children unless I'm moved with hatred for the thing that is destroying the object of my love. When you see what someone hates, you see really clearly what they love. And most often in our own lives, when we see what people hate, well, we see the thing that they love is themselves. When I think about the things that really make me angry, the times when I'm feeling my blood boil, well, it's because... I don't like not getting what I want. I felt a little bit of rage the other night when I was at the RSL and a lady cut in line at the bar. But it's just because I didn't feel like standing there. I, I'm selfish. But every so often, and for me it's probably like half a percent of the time, there are things that we actually should hate. Things where it is right to hate. Well, today we're continuing our series in John chapter 2, and we see Jesus get angry, and he gets really angry. We see Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem, and he is throwing tables. He is yelling. He's got a whip. And it's an unsettling picture of Jesus, because we tend to focus on Jesus gentle and lowly, meek and mild. We, we like the pictures of baby Jesus in a manger and Jesus being kind and compassionate and loving everybody. We like Jesus the lamb. Twice already in John's gospel we've seen Jesus given that description. He is the lamb of God. But as we get to the second half of John chapter 2, we see that the lamb has teeth. This is Jesus the lion. This is Jesus ripping and tearing. This is Jesus hating sin. And what we need to see this morning is that this is just as much the real Jesus. When it comes to seeing Jesus, we need to see the whole picture. Now there is nothing more comforting than knowing Jesus as the gentle and lowly lamb who is kind and compassionate and who lays down his life for us. When we're low, when we're flat, when we're struggling with the weight of our sin, we need to see Jesus as the Lord who is slow to anger and abounding in love. 
We need to know the one who says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You need to know Jesus the Lamb. But we also need to see that the Lamb has teeth. We need to know the Jesus who has all authority in heaven and on earth. We need to know the Jesus who will come to judge sinners. We, will, we need to know the Jesus who will defeat evil. And so friends, this morning we're going to see Jesus' angry side. And there are some of you that, that need to see this. And there are some of you who are low, who are struggling under the weight of sin. And I want, you to, I want you to see this too, but I also want you to not lose sight of Jesus' kindness and compassion. And in fact, for all of us, the thing that we're going to see is when we see what Jesus hates, it's then that we'll see most clearly what he loves. We'll see Jesus' kindness and compassion through his anger. There's only two points on your outline. It's nice and simple this morning. The first thing we're going to see in John 2 is that Jesus hates false religion. We pick up the story in verse 13. Jesus has just done his miracle in Cana where he turned the water into wine. He's now traveled up to Jerusalem for one of the most important days in the Jewish calendar. It's the Passover. And when Jesus walks into the temple, he sees something that makes him angry. People selling cattle, sheep and doves. And others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, it might seem strange that Jesus would find these things in the temple, but these people that Jesus finds are actually providing a pretty well-needed service to the Jewish community. You see, at Passover time, every Jew in the empire is coming to Jerusalem for the festival. People are traveling from all over. Some people will travel for days to make this journey. And when they get there, all of them are going to do two things. They're going to go to the temple to pay the temple tax, and they're going to offer an animal sacrifice. And so these people that Jesus finds in the temple courts, well, they're actually helping the Jews to do these two things. First, they're exchanging money so that Jews from all over the empire can pay the temple tax in the appropriate currency. And second, they're selling animals so that these travelers can offer a sacrifice without having to pack the animal in their suitcases. As I'm sure you can imagine, it's quite difficult to take a spotless, perfect lamb, a lamb without blemish, and keep them spotless and perfect on a 100-kilometer journey up to Jerusalem. It's much more convenient, much easier, to just buy a lamb when you get there. So these people are offering a service, an essential service. If COVID restrictions applied in Jerusalem, these guys would still be at work. But they make Jesus angry. Why does Jesus get angry at them? Now, John doesn't say anything to give us any hint that they were being dishonest, that they were, you know, dodgy businessmen. He doesn't say anything like that. The problem here is not so much what these people are doing, it's where they are doing it. 
Jesus would have had absolutely no problem if they were selling animals and changing money somewhere else. But they're in the temple courts. They're in the one place in the entire city that is dedicated to the worship of God. The one place where people can come to meet with God. The one place where people can come to make sacrifices for their sins. A place of prayer, a place of devotion, and they're turning it into a market. They're taking this place that is dedicated to God and they're using it to serve their own ends. They're taking something glorious and emptying it of all meaning so that all that is left is an empty shell of religious ritual. They're coming to the temple, but instead of having their eyes fixed on God, well, they're worried about business transactions. They're selling animals. They're changing money. They're in the right place. They're just doing the wrong thing. And Jesus won't have it. We see his response. He makes a whip out of cords. And that's kind of important to notice. He, he, he makes the whip. He's not just rolling around with a whip in his hands. He's, he didn't bring it with him. He hasn't just lost the plot and gone crazy without thinking. He's not in a blind rage. He's angry, but he's in control, isn't he? He has the presence of mind to go and find some cords and tie them up and make a whip and then use it to empty the temple of these traders. But what this episode shows us so clearly is that Jesus hates false religion. He hates it when people offer lip service to God. He hates it when people have all the exterior appearance of worshipping God, but do not have changed hearts. He hates it when people take the glorious reality of coming into the presence of the living God to worship and then twist it into a meaningless, self-serving ritual. He hates it. In fact, you could, you could say it's the thing he hates most. Because just consider this for a second. Consider how Jesus treats sinners. Now, there is no denying Jesus hates sin. He came to overcome sin. He came to rid the world of sin. But when Jesus encounters sinners, what does he do? In John chapter 4, we'll see in a few weeks, Jesus meets that Samaritan woman who's had a dozen husbands and who's now living with a man who's not her husband. She's a sinner. She's an outcast in her community. How does Jesus treat her? He treats her kindly. In John chapter 8, he meets an adulterous woman. She's about to get stoned for her sin. How does Jesus treat her? He treats her kindly. When Jesus meets Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who is known to have been greedy and stolen from his own people, how does Jesus treat him? He treats him kindly. When a prostitute comes and sits at Jesus' feet and pours perfume on him, and the Pharisees are ridiculing Jesus and saying, if he knew who she was, how does Jesus treat that prostitute? He treats her kindly. I mean, one of the things you love about Jesus is how he shows kindness to the worst of sinners. 
to the people that other sinners looked at and said, they're a sinner. And now Jesus hates sin. His sole purpose for coming into the world is to rid the world of sin. And yet when he comes face to face with the worst of sinners, he is nothing but kind and gentle and compassionate with them. He's not saying their sin is okay, but he still treats them with kindness. But do you see what Jesus does here in the temple? Do you know what Jesus does when he comes to people who are self-righteous or people who appear to be religious? The kind of people that Jesus meets here in the temple courts? What kind of people is it that Jesus calls snakes and sons of the devil and whitewashed tombs? It's religious people. He meets sinners, the worst of sinners, and he treats them kindly. But when he comes and finds religious people, he's brutal, he's ruthless. The whip comes out. You see, the people that cop Jesus' unrestrained wrath are people who are outwardly religious, but inwardly corrupt. The people who enter the temple to make money rather than worship God. The people who keep every last law, but who have no love for God or their neighbour. The people that make Jesus angry are, in the words of Isaiah, the people who honour me with their lips, but whose hearts are far from me. And friends, it's at this point that we all need to consider our own lives very carefully. And we need to ask the question, who is it that we are really worshipping? Who are you really worshipping? Now, worship is about much more than just what we do here in church. Your whole life as a Christian is an act of worship. But church is part of that. Do you come to church to have a genuine encounter with God? Are you here to express your love and devotion to him? Or is coming to church just a convenient place to catch up with friends? A nice community to be a part of? Is coming to church just the easiest way of avoiding an argument with your spouse? Who are you really worshipping? Consider, are you paying lip service to God? Honouring him with your outward actions, but having a heart that is far from him. Is your faith genuine? Or are you living behind a thin religious facade? Because friends, you may have everyone else fooled. You might even be fooling yourself. But if your worship is driven by your own emotional needs, or if your worship is driven by what other people think of you, if your worship is driven by anything other than a love for God, you won't fool him. He sees right through religious hypocrisy, and he hates it. He hates it because it dishonors God. It takes the glorious God and treats him as if he is nothing. 
But not only does false religion dishonor God, it also does something else. It dishonors people because it creates a barrier to other people coming to worship God too. And we see that in John chapter 2. In John 2, the barrier that it creates is quite literal. You see, only Jewish people were allowed into the, the temple building. But the temple also had a courtyard surrounding the building where non-Jews could come to worship God too. Now, if you were a Gentile, you couldn't go inside the temple, but you could come to the outer courts. You could come to meet with God. You could come to pray to him there. Unless, of course, that outer court is full of cows and sheep and money changers. Do, do you see the problem that they've created there? By setting up shop in the outer courts, these traders were hindering non-Jewish people from coming to worship God. They made it virtually impossible. They filled their worship space with cattle. They turned their place of worship into a market. So not only were they not worshipping God themselves, they only cared about their own you know, business dealings, but they were also making it hard for other people to worship God. They were blocking worship to God. And Jesus hates it. He drives them out of the temple. Jesus is saying, I would rather have a temple with no sacrifices than one that prevents genuine worshippers from coming to worship. Because friends, God's design for his people was then and still is today. It always has been one of attraction. He calls us to worship and that by our worshipping, we would invite others to worship. You think about it, it's like when you see a street performer in the city. You, know, you go down to Brisbane and you're walking through the mall and you, you see a performer. Often, what is it that captures your attention? It's, it's not necessarily the performer themselves. It's the crowd of people around the performer admiring them. You see a crowd of people surrounding someone, you go, I've got to see what they're looking at. It must be good. And friends, it's the same with us. It's the same with God's people. Genuine God-centered worship is attractive. People should see our worship and say, I want what he has. I want the God that has captivated her. I want the joy that they have. I want whatever it is that makes them that loving, that selfless. But friends, you know what people often see? They see fake religion. They see empty religion. They see self-serving religion. They see people who claim to worship God, but who seem thoroughly preoccupied with themselves. They see people who go to church, but who look no different from their neighbors that don't. They see hypocrisy. They see legalism. They see judgmentalism. And friends, it's not attractive. It's the opposite. It leads people to say, I don't know who their God is, but I know for certain I don't want him. One of the great tragedies of the church today is how we've turned something that was meant to make us look upward and outward 
and instead used it to look at ourselves. We've taken worship as an act of love for God and love for neighbour and made it an act of self-love. We've made private worship about what we can get out of God and we've made corporate worship about us creating a church service that suits my preferences. And friends, we need to see this morning, Jesus hates it. He hates it. He hates when we make church about our own preferences. He hates when we make religious service about our reputation. You know, we we do things for other people just so that we will get noticed, so that we can feel some sense of pride. He hates it when we draw near to him with our mouths, but when our hearts are far away from him. He hates it. But today he invites us to repent. He invites us to ask God to forgive us for making worship more about me than it is about him. And so friends, we need to ask God to help us. It is by his spirit alone that we can actually offer our lives in worship in genuine, heartfelt, love-filled, God-oriented worship. But to do that, we first need to see what true worship looks like. Because after publicly displaying his hatred of fake religion, Jesus shows the people of Jerusalem true religion. This is the second point. Don't worry, it's much shorter. Because in verse 18, the Jews respond to Jesus, his little whip show, and they ask him for a sign. They say, basically, who made you the boss of the temple? Prove to us that you have the authority to clear the temple. Show us some kind of sign. Prove yourself. And effectively, Jesus says, I am the temple. Jesus answers them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, understandably, they were confused by that. They're in a building that has taken 46 years to build. In fact, it wasn't finished yet. It was going to take another... Oh, I can't do the math. A few years to finish. (laughs) They finished in 64 AD. This is 27. Someone do it. Anyway, it's crazy to think that Jesus was going to knock down this building and rebuild it in three days. they struggle to comprehend what Jesus is talking about. You can, you can understand that, can't you? But John lets us in on what Jesus was really talking about. John tells us that the temple that Jesus was, was referring to was his own body. The temple is the place where people come to meet with God and the temple is the place where people come to have their sin dealt with through sacrifice and Jesus is about to open a new temple the new way to access God it's not in a building it's in a person the new way to have your sin dealt with is not through the death of an animal but the death of a person tear me down says Jesus which they would soon do and in three days you'll have a new temple a new way to come to the Father, a new way to be forgiven of your sin. 
which is exactly why Jesus is happy to get rid of all the animals at Passover festival. He, he kicks them all out of the temple because he's replacing them. It's also why the early Christians didn't despair when in the year 70, the Jerusalem temple was burned to the ground. And they didn't rebuild it because they have a new temple. Because worshipping God is not about coming to a building, it's coming to a person. It's not about giving service to God, but entrusting your whole self to that person. It's not about performing religious rituals, but allowing God to work in you and through you. And so friends, this morning, I want you to see the danger of empty religion. I want you to recognize the tragedy of looking like you're honoring God outwardly while in your heart you are far from him, while in your heart you are shutting him out. Recognize that danger. Let Jesus come into your heart and throw some tables around. Let him get the whip out. And perhaps you need to ask this morning for him to drive out things in your life that prevent you from worshipping him properly. Ask him for his forgiveness, but then if you want to worship rightly, if you want to worship truly, come to Jesus. Come to the new temple, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Worship the Father in spirit and in truth by worshiping the Father in him. Let me pray. Lord God, we're confronted with Jesus' anger this morning and we are aware that there are things in our life that would provoke that anger. We know that there are times in our lives, maybe even now, where we give the appearance of worshipping you but where in reality our hearts are far from you. And so Father, we repent of that today. And we ask that you would help us worship you truly. Fill us with your spirit so that we may offer our whole lives as living sacrifices to you. Give us the strength to resist the temptation to worship ourselves or to worship you in a way that is still just self-serving. Put that sin to death in our lives, we pray. Show us the one true temple, the one in whom we have access to you, not because of something that we can do, but because of what he has done for us. Show us the one who laid down his life as the Passover lamb, the one who sacrificed himself so that we could have life. Lord, we thank you for the offer of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his free and full forgiveness. We pray that by accepting that offer, we would be able to worship you truly here in this church and in our, our private lives with everything that we have, with everything that we are for the glory of his name. And we pray it in his name. Amen.